Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. Uh, for those of you that know me well, you probably know that one of my favorite restaurants in the entire world is Freebird's World Burrito. Uh, I eat there more than once a week, if I'm honest. There's one near my office, there's one near my house, and uh, one of the reasons I eat there as often as I do is because of the variety of options, right? You can get a salad, you can get a bowl, you can get a burrito, you can get tacos, nachos, all kinds of options. That said, if you've never been there before, first of all, shame on you. Secondly, secondly, if you've never been there before, the first time you walk in, it can be a little overwhelming uh, because there are a lot of questions that they ask right off the bat, right? So what entree do you want? Do you want a burrito? Do you want a salad? Do you want a bowl? What do you want? If you choose burrito, then there are a variety of other questions they're about to ask you. What kind of tortilla do you want? What kind of cheese? Do you want cheese? What kind of rice? What kind of beans? What kind of meat? What kind of vegetables? What kind of sauce, right? And each question that they ask you has a critical effect on your future, Right, Because the next 15, 20, 30 minutes of your life are largely going to be determined by how you answer those questions. Are you going to enjoy your lunch or not? There is probably even an effect on the entire space-time continuum moving forward based on how you answer those questions. But it's not just that it determines your future. Also, it tells us a little bit about you. Right, The type of order that you place tells us a little bit about you. So I have a friend that when we go there, he'll order a big burrito with only chicken and cheese, right? And that tells me he likes simplicity, but he doesn't understand the value of money, right? Both of those things. Maybe you're the type of person that you order a lot of spinach, but you also drown it in queso. And that tells us you want to want to be healthy, but you're not fully committed, right? (laughs) Maybe you're a person that orders lots of spicy stuff, lots of habanero sauce and jalapenos and everything. Really spicy food tells us you're bold, you're courageous, you're probably really good looking, you probably are a strong leader. That's exactly how I order mine. (laughs) Right? So your answers to those questions, they tell us a lot about your future, right? They help determine your future and they also tell us a lot about you. Now, the reason I share that is because if that is true in mundane questions, right? If in our lives there are relatively mundane questions that help us determine our future and tell us a lot about ourselves, how much more so is that true in the spiritual life? How much more so is it true in our relationship to God that there are critical questions that when we answer these critical questions, we'll have a deeper and better understanding of what our future looks like with God. We'll have a deeper understanding of, do I know that I have eternal life? And we'll have a deeper understanding of ourselves. Where am I with God? Do I know him? Can I be confident in my future? Right, so there are certain spiritual questions that we could ask that are critical to our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of God, our understanding of the future. As I was reading John chapter 20 this week, I ran across three such questions. Now, if you're not familiar with John 20, 
John 20 is one of the primary passages in the book of John about the resurrection of Jesus. John 20 is all about how Jesus, after he died on Friday, rose again on Sunday. And John 20 tells us the story of Jesus' friends and followers as they discover that his tomb was empty. And in the course of Jesus appearing to them throughout John 20, he asks certain questions. Now, when Jesus asks the questions in John 20, nobody answers his questions right away. They, they feel like rhetorical questions, and yet I think Jesus asks these questions for a reason. And I think the Apostle John recorded them for a reason, because they're critical questions. And here's what I want to do this morning as we look at John 20. I want to look at these questions because there are three questions in John 20 that I think when we answer them, if we can understand the answers to these questions, they will actually help us answer our own questions, all the questions that we have that are deeply significant. So maybe you walked in this morning and you have some questions. Why is the world broken? Why is it that the world doesn't seem like it works as it should Why do I feel broken? Why do I struggle with sadness? Why do I struggle with darkness in my heart? What's going to happen when I die? What's going to happen at the end of the world? Can I really know God? As we answer Jesus' questions this morning, Jesus' questions are going to illuminate our own questions. Here's what I'm going to say this morning. I think all of the central questions of humanity are answered at the empty tomb. All of the central questions of humanity are answered by the reality of the empty tomb. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, before I dive into the first question, I want to read part of John 20 and set the stage just a little bit. So if you've got a Bible, follow along. John chapter 20, I'm going to start in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciples went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. So here's what happens. Jesus is crucified the day before the Sabbath, and he's lying in the tomb all weekend long. Because it was the day before the Sabbath when Jesus was crucified, there wasn't time for his body to be properly prepared for burial. They didn't have the time to anoint him with the spices that would embalm the body. So Mary Magdalene, and Luke actually tells us there were some other women with her, she comes very early in the morning on Sunday morning, as early as she can get there. 
When she arrives, what she finds is that the large stone that covered the opening of the tomb had already been rolled away. Now, I don't know how Mary and these other ladies believed they were going to roll the stone away. The stone was huge. No one person could have rolled it away, but they get there and the stone is rolled away. It's still dark. And so I don't know if Mary looks inside the tomb at this point or not, but she can't tell what's going on. She panics. She runs back. She finds Peter and John. She says, hey, he's gone. Now, at this point, they believe somebody has stolen Jesus' body or moved it. So Peter and John take off running. John refers to himself throughout his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus Loved. So anytime you see that, that's John. So Peter and John take off running. They're running back to the tomb. And I love this detail. John writes, he says, and the one that Jesus loved, he ran faster. (laughs) He got there first. I think in heaven somewhere, Peter is going, John, you had to write that down, didn't you? In the eternal inerrant scripture. John has this little blue ribbon, right? Winner of the only empty tomb race in history. All right, so they both get there. And for some reason, John pauses outside the tomb. But Peter, in typical Peter fashion, he just runs right in. And he goes into the tomb. And here's what he sees. He sees the linen wrappings lying there, which John had noticed. But Peter sees something else, that the head cloth around Jesus' head has been rolled up and placed aside. So now John goes in and they see this and they become convinced based on this evidence that Jesus has not been stolen, right? Because a grave robber would not take the time to unwrap the body and leave the linen wrappings and the head cloth behind. I suspect, I I don't know this for sure, but I suspect they also recognize a little bit of Jesus' personality, that after he rises from the dead and he takes off these wrappings, he neatly folds up his little headcloth and sets it aside. He takes a moment for organization on his way out of the tomb. And Peter and John look and they go, we believe he's alive, right? They didn't understand yet from the scripture, it says, but they're excited. So they run away, right? They run off and they leave Mary Magdalene standing by the tomb. Apparently, they don't take a moment to explain to her what they figured out. So now we have one of what I think is the most heart-wrenching moments in all the resurrection narratives, right after they run away. Verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, I love this scene because here's Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene was a friend and follower of Jesus. Luke tells us Jesus had actually cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Now, remember, Peter and John had just been inside the tomb. And there were no dudes sitting inside the tomb. Now, Mary walks in and there are two angels in the tomb. And I love that the very first person to whom heaven announces the resurrection of our Savior is a woman who has somewhat of a questionable past who might not have been believed and in fact wasn't believed. And they look up and they go, hey lady, why are you crying? 
And she says, well, they took him away. They took away my Savior. I don't know where they laid him. And then John says, Mary turns around and saw Jesus standing there. And she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, and this is our first question for the morning. Jesus said to her, why are you weeping? He says, woman, why are you weeping? As Mary stands there crying outside the empty tomb, Jesus addresses her in a way that was not considered disrespectful at the time, but not necessarily particularly warm. He says, why are you weeping? Mary, what's making you sad? Well, we know what's making Mary sad, right? Mary is sad because Jesus is dead, right? She saw him die. And now on top of that, insult has been added to injury. And she believes somebody has stolen away the body of her Savior, has desecrated the body of her Savior. Why is Mary weeping? Mary is ultimately weeping because of this, because we live in the type of world where people die. Right? Not only that, but the man who said, I am what? The resurrection and the life. That's in the book of John, chapter 11. The man who raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. That man is in the grave, she believes. And not only that, but we live in a world where evil people do things like break in to steal from tombs. And so Mary is weeping. She doesn't recognize Jesus. It says she supposes He's the gardener. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. It's not that Jesus is wearing overalls and carrying a rake or something. She doesn't recognize him because she is so deeply caught up in her own sense of pain. Because Mary has lost hope. Mary has no hope. If her Savior is dead, if his body has been stolen... She's lost hope. Why are you weeping, Mary? We weep because we live in a broken, damaged, sinful, death-filled world. You and I weep for the same reason Mary wept. Some of you came in here this morning and you're on the verge of crying yourself because your life and this world, you know, they don't feel like they should. And so you weep. We weep because we live in a damaged and fallen world. When my oldest daughter was a toddler, she had a little blanket. Some of your kids have a lovey or a blanket. This was this pink blanket that she carried everywhere that she slept with. Don't tell her I told you it's still in her closet. She doesn't sleep with it anymore. But it was this wonderful pink blanket. She called it Wooly Blanket. And one day we were out of town and I grabbed Wooly Blanket from the car because this was in the day she was two or three. We had to take Wooly Blanket everywhere. So we were going into a museum and I grabbed Wooly Blanket and it was wet and rainy outside. And as I walked out of the car, my hand slipped and I dropped Wooly Blanket in the mud. And she saw me drop Wooly Blanket in the mud and began to howl. Tears of pain, tears of sadness, tears of anger. She shouted at me, you dropped it. 
in the mud. As a father, it was a deep betrayal of her trust. I picked it up. I said, well, we can clean it. It's fine. We'll fix it. I laid it over the back of one of the car seats to dry out. And I said, we can wash it. I promise we washed it. No joke. She still remembers it. It was a decade ago. She reminded me a year later at breakfast one day, dad, do you remember when you dropped woolly blanket in the mud? She will tell it to her psychologist one day. I promise you. (laughs) But every time I think about that story, here's what I think. That's the way our world is, right? God creates this pristine world. It's beautiful. It's clean. It represents him. It's gleaming white. And then because of our sin, we take it and we drop it in the mud. And the stain of sin and death spreads to all creation. And there is no amount of tide on the planet that can clean it up. How many of us over the course of the last six weeks have dropped our children off at school and as we drop them off at school, we said a silent prayer, oh God, keep them alive and safe until 3.30 when I pick them up. Because we live in a world where sometimes children hurt and kill other children. How many of us last fall grieved as the world itself seemed to turn on the city of Houston? and flood homes, and destroy lives. We grieve because as Romans chapter 8 tells us, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Why do you weep, Mary? Why do you weep this morning? Because the earth is broken. Because sin leads to death. And it's not just that the world out there is broken. We are aware that our world in here is broken. Why do we live in a corrupt world? Why do we seem at times to have nations that have corrupt governments? Why is there violence? Why is there selfishness around in the world? You know why? Because there's violence and selfishness and corruption in us. And a society made up of 300 million or 7 billion corrupt and broken and sinful and rebellious people. You know what that turns into? A corrupt, sinful, rebellious, violent, broken world. Psalm chapter 14. The psalmist says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And the Apostle Paul would come back to those words in Romans chapter 3. No matter how good you think you are, you've rebelled against God. You've chosen your own way. And so we look around and we say, this is a world filled with death. This is a world filled with hopelessness. This is a world filled with violence and corruption and immorality. But the reality is it's in us. We value what we ought not value because we're selfish. And so we weep. So Jesus says, Mary, why are you weeping? And then he immediately turns to her. And he says this second question. He asks this second question. 
Whom are you seeking? Mary, whom are you seeking? I love this question because I think this is a question that's designed to pull Mary up for just a moment. Mary, just for a moment. Look beyond your tears. I want to ask you a question. Whom are you seeking? Think about it for a minute, Mary. And then it says in verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener. She, has, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. She says, look, if you did something to him, Mr. Gardener, show me where he is. I'll pick him up myself and I will bring him back to where he belongs. Jesus says, Mary, who are you looking for? You know, when you read commentaries on the gospel of John, there are some people who will say, you know, Jesus must have somehow altered his appearance at first so that Mary didn't recognize him. Possible. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Jesus is standing right in front of her and she doesn't recognize him. And you know why? Because you don't expect your friend to be standing outside his tomb. That's not normal. And Mary's eyes are flooded with tears. And so she turns around and she hears the voice, but she doesn't process his face. This actually can happen to us in real life as well. Have you ever seen somebody, for example, that you work with and you see him at the grocery store and it's out of context for you, right? You go, wait a second, who are you? When you were a kid, did you ever see one of your teachers out and about? And you could not fathom how a teacher could be displaced from the school. That was where they belonged. I ran across a great story in Texas Monthly Magazine a few years ago. This is about uh, George Strait, the famous country singer. His producer, his longtime producer, Tony Brown, told this story. He said one time they were recording an album but they weren't recording it in Nashville. They were recording at a studio in Key West, Florida. And they said there was this little studio, this little white cinder block studio right next to the water where George Strait could slip out and just hop on his yacht and go for a little sail and then come back and sing again. He loved it. But he said the, the problem with the studio is there was no place kind of to hang out, no lobby or anything like that. So one day they're in this studio and some of the techs are working on a guitar. And so George steps outside for a minute and he sits down on a chair outside the studio and he puts on a hat and he's just sitting there. And as he's sitting there, says this older couple walks down the boardwalk. The lady goes, sir, my husband says George Strait is in that building cutting a record. And George says, honey, I was just in there and I didn't see him. So they walk off. George says to me, it's so good to be famous. I said, what if they'd recognized you? He just smiles and says, they never do. Why? Because you don't expect him to be sitting outside the studio in plain sight. Right? Mary doesn't recognize Jesus because his resurrection is so far beyond anything she could imagine has happened. And so Jesus says, hey, Mary, who, who are you looking for? If you would just look for a minute, Mary, if you would just pay attention for a minute, here's what I think you're going to see, Mary, if you'll open your eyes. What you're going to see is this. The answer to your weeping, he's right here. 
The answer to your weeping, Mary, is found in the reality that nobody is in that tomb. And the one who was in that tomb is outside the tomb. And he's standing right in front of you, Mary. So who are you looking for? You looking for someone to wipe your tears away? He's here. And I love the next scene because Jesus just says, Mary. And as soon as he says her name, she says, Rabboni. That's an Aramaic word that means teacher, my teacher. And she must have grabbed him and given him a big hug or something because in the very next verse, Jesus says, stop holding on to me because I have not yet ascended to my father, but I'm gonna. He says, Mary, you need to go and tell my disciples, tell the others what it is that you saw. Who are you looking for? Mary, the answer to your weeping is in the reality of the empty tomb. Here's why. If Jesus isn't in that tomb, then all of our reasons for weeping have been answered, right? If Jesus isn't in that tomb, death itself has been reversed. So that when we get to the book of Revelation and it describes the kingdom of God coming from heaven, you know what John would say, the same writer who wrote what we're talking about this morning. He says, the kingdom of God came down to earth. And here's what I saw. There was no more what? There was no more weeping. There were no more tears. There was no more death. There was no more sickness. There was no more sadness. You know why? Because on that Easter morning, 2,000 years ago, Jesus vacated the tomb. You looking for hope? It's standing right in front of you. If Jesus is out of the tomb, then sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. And we all can have life by believing in Jesus' name. Paul would write this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied because we're tragically and eternally wrong. But then he goes on and he says this, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That is just like the first man, Adam, when he sinned, death and sin spread to all creation. And we all sinned. Paul says, in Jesus, our second Adam, death is undone. And he goes on, he says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And John would write in exile from the Isle of Patmos decades later about how Jesus would take death itself and cast it into the lake of fire. Who are you looking for? Mary, whom are you seeking? The one you're looking for? The one who solves the problems of weeping? He's right here. He rose from the dead. It's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something we believe is a metaphor for spring and flowers and bunnies. 
it's real. And if it's real, then our cause for weeping has been undone. And if it's real, then that leads each of us to the next question, to the third question that Jesus is going to ask in this chapter. The third question is this, have you believed? Let me explain what happens next. Mary goes and he tells the disciples, or she tells the disciples, hey, guess who I saw? And Luke and Mark both tell us, hey, they didn't believe her. They didn't believe the women when they came back and they said, Jesus is alive. So now they're huddled up in the upper room and they're hiding out. And all of a sudden, Jesus, in one of these classic moments, he just walks through the door, like the closed, locked door. And he goes, peace be with you. And everybody, it says, rejoices, right? Actually, some of the other gospels say, first, they're terrified, which you would be too. And he walks into the room, he says, peace be with you. And they begin to rejoice because now they believe. But see, here's the problem. There was one guy, for whatever reason, that wasn't there, right? Thomas is not in on the hide in the tomb meeting or hide in the upper room meeting that day. He's not there. So they go and they tell Thomas and Thomas is like, whatever. All right, we give Thomas a hard time. What we forget is nobody believed it the first time they heard it. Right, Thomas says, look, unless I see the marks in his hands and feet, unless I touch his side, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I have to say, that's actually a pretty reasonable position he's taking. He saw him die. And so eight days later, they are gathered together again. And Jesus does it again. He pops through the wall. Peace be with you. Except this time, Thomas is there. Right, and look with me at verses 27 to 29 of chapter 20. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, and my God. What's interesting is there's no indication that Thomas actually touched him. Thomas saw him. And he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And, and it leaves that question hanging in the air. See, here's, here's the deal. Why didn't Thomas believe at first? Why did the other disciples not believe at first? Here's why. Because they had to trust eyewitnesses, right? So if you see somebody famous today or something amazing happens to you, what is the major piece of evidence that you can demonstrate that will prove that you saw that famous person? A selfie, right? That's what you do. That is accepted as evidence, and so there, that, that wasn't the case in their day. It is the case in our day. In fact, several years ago, I was reminded of this as I was thinking about it this week. We were at Blue Baker here in town with our family eating. And as we were eating, uh, my sister-in-law was with us and she says, hey, you see that girl over there? And we said, yes. She goes, she is an Olympic gold medalist swimmer. And we said, are you serious? Right? We began to debate amongst ourselves. We began to talk. And uh, it turned out this, this girl walked by our table in the line. So we began to talk with her. And it turns out she, in fact, was. She was Olympic gold medalist Allison Schmidt, a four-time gold medalist. So what did we do? Well, we took a picture, right? 
We got the girls. We said, hey, stand over there. And she was very gracious and kind. And she took a photo with our kids. And you see that and you say, okay, I believe that you saw. You couldn't do that in Jesus' day. You couldn't walk down the street and say, hey, I saw Herod. Herod, come over here. I'm going to grab my phone. You had to trust eyewitnesses. So Thomas doesn't initially believe. Here's what Jesus now says. Thomas, because you have seen, have you believed? How much more blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed? Will you trust the eyewitness testimony of those who were there? And John records this to leave that question hanging in the air. Have you believed in the one who rose from the dead? There are all sorts of reasons that I believe the resurrection to be true. And in fact, I will tell you in those moments in my life where I felt my faith in Jesus was hanging by a thread, I always come back to this. That I can't explain the empty tomb in any other way other than that he's alive. I can't explain why these men and women spent the rest of their lives scattered around the Roman Empire, preaching that Jesus is alive, facing persecution and ridicule and ostracism and death if they didn't see him. And so John says, have you believed? Jesus says, have you believed? Right here, toward the end of chapter 20, John says, therefore, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may what? You may have life in his name. If you came in this morning and you don't yet believe in Jesus Christ, The only message for you to hear this morning is this. That that you need to grapple with the reality of the empty tomb. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, if the tomb is empty, that answers all the questions of your life that are really significant. Can you know that you have eternal life with God? Absolutely. Why? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, death itself has been undone. And all who believe in him will rise again, just as he rose again. That's why Paul says he's the first fruits. He's just the first. All who believe in Jesus can know that you have eternal life. Have you believed in him? If for some reason you came in this morning and you say, I'm not sure, I am not sure if I believe in Jesus Christ. Or you say, I know I haven't. But I want to make that move toward him this morning in faith. I want to trust in him this morning because I want to know that I can have life in his name. If that is you, please come up at the end. You can talk with me. We're going to have some men and women actually up at the front of the room available to talk with you this morning. If you're in the room and you say, I know I believed in Jesus Christ, then do you, like those disciples, do you live in light of the reality of the resurrection? I was reminded of Jesus' words in John chapter 7. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives inside your heart. 
Paul says in Romans 8, that's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God lives in you. And Jesus says, out of you will flow rivers of living water. Another way that he would put it in John chapter 10. Why did he come? I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That when the Spirit of God moves in, it's not just that you have eternal life one day in heaven. It's that that life starts now. And that's what happened to the disciples. Because Jesus rose from the dead. They said, if this is real and we've seen him, everything changes. It means I have a commission now from Jesus himself to do what he said which is, hey, Mary, go tell the others. Hey, disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel because he's alive from the dead. It means we live our lives to reflect him with what we do, with what we say, with what we think, with who we are. And the great news is because Jesus rose from the dead and because that spirit lives in us, now that brokenness and sin Step by step, God undoes that. So for those who follow Jesus Christ, we become more and more and more like our resurrected Savior. And we go into the world and we say, here's the good news you need to answer the questions of your life. Why do we weep? Because the world is broken and so are we. Whom are we seeking? The one who burst out of that tomb. On Easter morning. So have you believed? If we've believed, nothing is ever the same again. Would you pray with me? Father, we're overcome by the goodness you displayed in giving us your son who died on our behalf so that we might live who rose again on Easter morning so we would know that sin and death have been forever defeated. And we thank you for the life we look forward to when, as the Apostle Paul wrote, the last enemy to be abolished will be death itself. Father, we thank you. And we pray that your spirit would consistently and steadily transform our hearts. Father, we pray as we go to the office tomorrow that we would be ambassadors of the risen Savior proclaiming the good news as your followers did so many years ago. And Father, if there are any in the room this morning that don't yet know you through Jesus who have not had an encounter with that empty tomb and with the Savior who emerged from it, if anybody in this room doesn't know you, Father, I pray they would not leave the room without settling their own eternity before you. We thank you for this time and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.